0: You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and my guest in this episode is Zoe Routh. Zoe thinks that leaders have got it tough. Not only are we battling uncertain times, we're also battling a crisis in the trust of leadership. She's here to help us understand what it takes to approach leadership in a wiser, more compassionate way. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Zoe Ralph. Zoe Ralph, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast.
1: I am absolutely thrilled to be here, actually. It's so exciting.
0: Oh, that's very kind of you. What a lovely way to start. (laughs) Zoe, your latest book, and it's not your first book, is called People Stuff. It's a fantastic read. And what I love most about it, and what we're going to deliver to the listeners in this, in this episode, is a really thorough understanding of what you call leadership archetypes. So we'll get to that, and that will form the guts of our conversation today. And I'm really, really looking forward to listening to you explain those archetypes. But before we get there, I'd just love to hear the story of this book. Why did you write it? How did you land on this particular one?
1: Well, it is book number four, uh, which I can hardly believe myself. Well, sometimes you're prolific. <laughs> oh my goodness! This one had uh, was the seeds of it were germinated in just so many conversations I was having with leaders about what they found most difficult in leadership, and unanimously, consistently, it was people stuff and. Those were the actual words people use. You know, it's like the people dynamics, like people management and that people just don't get along or my teams are fighting or it was everything to do with interpersonal dynamics that was difficult for people. And I think, you know, we spend so much time at work. It's important that we enjoy it and we enjoy who we do it with. And it's one of the biggest obstacles that people have in the way of having rewarding work experiences and team experiences. So that was the kernel of, the, of it. That's where it started. And then I sort of expanded that whole idea of how do we do people engagement and people interaction better to really what it comes down to is perspective. And I think perspective is at the heart of how we can do leadership better. And if we develop the practice of perspective, how we see ourselves, how we see others, and how we see the world, then we'll be better able to deliver better leadership. For our teams, for our organizations, and for our communities, so that we had like simple problem which morphed into a large agenda. <laughs> That's the start of it.
0: Good story. One of the things that you said in there really resonates with me, and listeners would have heard me talk about it so many times on the podcast, and that is that no matter what's going on in a workplace, whether we're talking about a change agenda or thinking about how we lead or manage or delegate, the good stuff, the bad stuff that happens in organizations, everything that Falls into those categories is happening to human beings. It's happening to people who have lives and emotions, they have relationships, they have hobbies, they have stuff going on in their whole world. And I am never far away from remembering that of all the moving parts and organizations, of all the different ways that different leaders try and motivate people. And some of it's not pretty. And you would know that, you would have seen that. I am always really close to reminding myself and anyone who will listen that we're talking about human beings here people who go to their home to their kids their husband their wife and everything else that comes with being a human being so i love what your book is about now we're going to talk about the five archetypes of leadership really soon and as i said i'm pumped for that and i think our leaders will get a lot from it and just listening to the descriptions of what they're about and trying to imagine where they fit in into these archetypes at their best and at different times through their career but before we get there, I want to talk about the concept of archetypes in general, because before we hit record, I suggested to you that it was really obvious in your book that you're a literary person. You're someone who loves literature, and it turns out that that's very much the case. Tell us a little bit about your background with literature and, and what archetypes mean in general.
1: Sure. Well, I did confess that I studied Honours English Literature at university at McGill University, and so I spent a good long time reading lots of books and analyzing the construction of stories and meaning and metaphor and what it means for the reader and society in general. So that's long been part of who I am. Archetypes are a fascinating concept. Like they are basically a blueprint for stories with which we are very familiar. And Joseph Campbell, of course, he studied archetypes across cultures, and he came up with a unified summary of a common narrative that goes across cultures called the hero's journey. And this sort of is a classic, a classic narrative of the young person who, or not even always young, but an individual who is going about their day-to-day life, and then there is a call to adventure. And they get called forward into... Plus, come and save the day. Come on this grand thing that you're going to do something giant with your life. And they resist the call. And then there's a there's a mentor that appears and says, come on, you can do it. And then there's a guardian who says, no, you'll never amount to anything. And then they get pulled across the threshold and they go off on these grand adventures and they battle demons and slay dragons and end up in the belly of the whale in the depths of despair. And they overcome this moment of giant humility to emerge triumphant with a boon of knowledge. And they bring that back to the village to say, look, what I have learned I share with you. (laughs) And that's sort of a general bastardization of the hero's journey. And it's an archetypal story in that it's a pattern that is recognized across cultures. Like a lot of folklore narratives have this kind of common conversation. So archetypes are like that, like the hero's story. And if I say queen, everybody sort of has an idea in their head about what a queen might be a ruler, a fair and equitable ruler, a compassionate ruler, somebody who is called to service and will have challenges in the name of that service. So we kind of immediately get a picture of what that role, if you like, is like and with all its ups and downs and challenges. And there are, there are thousands of different archetypes that we could choose from if we were to look for guidance in terms of embodying a particular uh, story, if you like. I do have to say one thing about the hero's journey, too is um, my mentor put me onto this. And in fact, the hero's journey is a male narrative. And Joseph Campbell's students, Maureen Murdoch, actually did some additional research around stories. And there's the heroine's journey, which is not as well known and is quite different to the hero's journey. And the heroine's journey is a woman who starts off on her leadership journey as trying to embody male leadership roles. And her struggle is quite different to the hero. Her struggle is about realizing the emptiness of trying to lead in a masculine way. Now, these are not like gender or sex-based narratives. It's more about the essence of the energy. And her journey is about reconciling the divine feminine. So accessing her true inner power and balancing the male and female uh, energy within her. So the heroine's story is really about empowerment, whereas the hero's journey is one of humility and service. And they're quite different narratives. And I think that's really fascinating when we have a look at what does this mean for us as leaders? Do we, can we follow a hero's journey or a heroine's journey, whether we're men or women? There's elements of each that are probably useful, us, useful for us to turn to throughout our lives and our leadership experiences to gain strength and inspiration from. So that's the start of the archetypal conversation.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I love it. I've I've got to confess, one of the books I'm reading at the moment, and I normally have a few on the hop, is a book called Can You Believe How to Read Literature Like a Professor by a guy called <laughs> Thomas C. Foster. And it is fascinating. I I love it because it's opening my eyes to all of the imagery that's involved in quality literature and all of the meaning that oozes from it. And he, of course, talks about the archetype characters and and as you talked about we're all very familiar with lots of those archetypes the hero for example and we can think of many of them you know one of my favorite archetypes is the rogue detective you know think about the the guy or girl who's a policeman or a or a detective and they solve their crimes in a really unorthodox way and you know they're going to break some rules along the way but the thing about these archetypes is you know where it's going to end you know the hero is going to conquer you know that the rogue detective is going to solve the crime but the beauty of the story or the what what wins you over is how you get there and and don't worry listeners we're going to link this to leadership really directly and i think you'll be impressed by the way we do link it to leadership you know one of the things that you said in your book that got me thinking was that when we identify with an archetype that in a place in our life we often let that spill into other parts of our life. I can't remember exactly the words you used, but that was the meaning I extracted, and I I kind of pondered that for myself. So one of the things that I do, Zoe, in my personal life is a long distance swimmer. So I I love swimming. The older I've gotten, because I'm getting slower, the longer I have been swimming, and that idea, that archetype. So there's a little part of my life where I see myself as that. And it's not just limited to swimming though, because if I'm ever challenged by a deadline that means I've got to work late into the night or overnight, I hate doing it by the way, but every now and then I will do it. I kind of, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, tell myself, hey, you're an endurance athlete. You can do this. You can get through that because of the other part of your life. There's this archetype. I kind of have this picture of myself as something, and it kind of to sound really ridiculous, gives me power in other parts of my life. and there's there's another archetype I live with is is the father, the the devoted family man father. And of course I'm not perfect at that, but because I've made a decision at some point, whether subconsciously or consciously to be that archetype, I find that that makes it very easy for me to say goodbye to other things, other opportunities that might pop up in my life and conflict with the devoted father archetype that I've set up for myself. And I'd love to hear you talk about that, the, the way that we see ourselves and, and how it spills over into other parts of our life. And Then, of course, we'll move on to the five archetypes of leadership that you've so nicely described in your book.
1: I love that you picked to the, that um, that story about being embodying the endurance athlete. And I think that's the critical aspect of these archetypes because they are so fundamental and then so ingrained in our consciousness, our common consciousness, because it's folklore, is that when we conjure whatever it is, whether it's the endurance athlete or the rogue detective or the, the giving father, we can feel the story actually coming into our body so that we know exactly how they think exactly how they feel, exactly how they operate. We understand their inner narrative. And it's so much easier to replicate that as an archetype, as opposed to picking an attribute like, I'm going to be disciplined, or I'm going to be focused, which are just abstract words. But when they are associated to this persona, then we we can just morph into that, whether it's in our personal lives. And by the way, in my personal life, this is a true confession now. I like to channel the archetype of a U.S. Oh, Navy great. SEAL. Oh, <laughs> Tell
0: us more about that.
1: <laughs> because they are the hardest <laughs> bastards I've ever come across. And I am forever in admiration of their training and their focus and their uniform commitment to what they're doing and to each other as a team. So I think as an archetype for both self-discipline and self-control as well as team dynamic, I think they're ideal. So I use it in the gym.
0: <laughs> right place <laughs> to use it.
1: I am so far from... Yeah, exactly. I was doing it today, actually, with my trainer. And he's like, okay, we're going to do an ab brace now for a minute. I'm like, ugh. So, I'm doing the ab brace. I'm like, this sucks. And then I'm like, what would a Navy SEAL do? They would not give up. (laughs) They would keep going until they died. I'm like, okay, I can hold a brace for one minute. I probably won't die. (laughs) Exactly. So, it helps me because I am so far from being a US Navy SEAL. But if I can embody just a fraction of the kind of energy and focus and discipline that they have, I'm at least 1% better. <laughs> so that's that's an advantage. So that's how we can, that's the power of Archetypes because their story is so familiar. We can just soak it into our bodies and express it that way, whether it's in our personal lives or in our professional world. And I think that's where, from a leadership context, it becomes is pretty powerful as well, is that we can be deliberate in our conscious choice of archetypes depending on what's happening in our world, our business world at the moment and what's happening in our personal world at the moment, and lean on the strengths of that particular archetype to serve the situation at the time.
0: I think you'd be a fun person, Zoe, to have a really great chat with about literature. And that's not what this podcast's about, but I'm sensing that would be a really <laughs> good thing to talk to you about. All right, now let's get to what this podcast is about. It's about leadership and being better leaders. It's about being a deliberately developing leader, a conscious developing person, and this is going to help. So I'm gonna I'm gonna spoil the secret here and and talk about the fact that there are five archetypes: the pioneer, the guardian, the warrior, the diplomat, and of course, there's the elder. And the elder has a very special place in that group. Before I get you to explain each of those and and you know, Sometimes when you get someone to explain a, a number of things, you, you run the risk that it's going to get too dot pointy, but I don't have that fear with you, Zoe. I don't think <laughs> it's going to get too dot pointy with you. Before we get to that, I think we probably have to explore the concepts of purpose and ethos first. Is that true?
1: Yeah. So that you're talking about the underpinning elements of the model I use for archetypes. And when I was thinking about which archetypes serve best in leadership, I was thinking, well, there's polls, I guess, that happen for leaders. And it could be any number of different polls, but the one around purpose is pretty important. And when I was thinking about purpose in business, I find that it, it spins between winning and building. So this is kind of a tension that leaders often have in business are they building something proactively or are they trying to win something, win ground, win rights, win something back? So there's a different kind of mm. purpose energy, I guess, around those business purposes. And they're not often happening at the same time. It's like you're kind of doing one or the other. Build and, and win. ethos, can, build and win. Actually, yeah. before
0: you move on to ethos, can I say when you talk about that, we think of politics in Australia, the difference between building something and winning, We've been in a a period of time for a long time, well over a decade now, where it feels like the narrative or or the purpose, and, and, and we're supposed to accept that the purpose is just for one party to win over top of the other party, and that building a nation or building a state isn't even part of the agenda anymore, it's about winning. Is that a fair insight into what you see in leadership at the national and state level of politics?
1: Uh, yeah, and I think our systems drive that. You know, we have a three-year election cycle. Like you're just lurching you gotta from win. you got to win, and it is it does our nation in some ways such a great disservice. Now that was never its intention. Its was, intention was to keep despots from arising and keeping the contribution of democracy alive by having such a quick cycle. And probably a hundred years ago, three years seemed like a reasonable time. It is not a reasonable time in some ways now, because how can you build a nation in three years? You know, you need you need a much longer horizon. And this sh- short-termism is problematic in so many different ways. And I think you've made a absolutely sound insight there, is that it it keeps politicians and parties being able to genuinely speak about long-term growth and development of our nation because they're sh- stuck in such short-term commitments. Nobody can promise a 20-year plan because nobody knows if they're going to be in the job a year from now. And then when we are having all that leadership spill stuff and the two parties for the, oh my God, that was just nuts. You know, five prime ministers in in as many years. Five was, minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the long-term business pl- or nation building happening then? It's, oh.
0: So they resort to just winning rather than building. All right. So yeah. that's good. So we've described one of those. And, and the reason we're talking about purpose and ethos is because when we get to the archetypes, picture a, a classic quadrant model, purpose uh, is on one of the axes and ethos is on the other. So you've described purpose and that's the tension between building and winning. Tell us about ethos.
1: It's kind of the principle, I guess, of what the leaders are then doing. So and there's a tension between preserving and progressing. And again, that's it's an interesting tension, isn't it? Like if you you want to preserve the best of what you've created in a business or a community, and at the same time, you want to develop and move something forward. And that, that is to a true, to To
0: mm-hmm.
1: survive, to grow, to develop, to meet the existing conditions. And so, it's a tension that is often quite difficult to navigate. And they have very different energies related to them and very different tasks and focus areas that leaders need to contend with as well. Like, if you're focusing on preserving, that's very different than it is to progress something. So, you need to show up quite differently as a result.
0: All right. That's brilliant. Let's get stuck into it now. Now, you be the boss here because Zoe, you know this far better than I do. I was going to skip over Elder and finish off with Elder and ask you to start with Pioneer, but you take the lead on this. What we really want to hear is, what are the things that I might look in each of these archetypes and identify in myself? What am I looking for to ask myself, am I a Pioneer, Guardian, Warrior, or a Diplomat? Explain what it is that characterizes those, and what are its strengths, and what is indeed its shadow? Because we know that for and most of our strengths they are also our weakness and each of these archetypes have a shadow. So I'm going to follow your lead but I'm still going to interrupt a lot. <laughs>
1: okay. All right, since you're so excited about the pioneer, we can start there. The pioneer has such a fabulous dynamic to it. The pioneer is all about experiments and trying new things and taking measured risks, I have to say, measured risk and creating something new. And so they are really balancing the ethos and purpose of building as well as progressing. So it's that real forward momentum focus. And as we go through each of the archetypes, it's not to ask yourself, which one am I? It's which one could serve me right now? Because we all have access to all of these archetypes and some we we can lean into more readily than others. We might naturally gravitate to one over another, but I think they can all serve us and we can choose to embody any of them depending on what circumstance we're in. So the pioneer is really well placed when we've kind of got a clean slate almost or a radical burning platform and we have to take a jump. At the beginning of COVID, I had a webcast and I asked leaders, I went through this model with them. I said, where do you see yourself sitting? And I was expecting a few more pioneers and no, (laughs) everybody at the beginning of COVID was sitting in the Guardian, which I'll talk about next. And I thought, well, because COVID-19, absolutely, everybody had to step into the unknown and reinvent themselves. Yeah, Mm -hmm. But it took many people a little bit longer to get there than I thought they would because everybody went into protect, which is one of the elements that uh, draws us into the Guardian. We need to protect and build. And it's one of the most difficult dynamics, actually. How do you protect and preserve as well as build? So it's and this one is about taking the best of what exists and building on top of it. And so the guardian is the next archetype, which is often mistaken for being the devil's advocate or being stuck in the mud or being change resistant, because they will ask questions like, say things like, hang on a minute, have we considered all the options, or we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We want to take what's good from here and move forward. So they're much more measured. So we need the guardian when we need to be measured and careful in our steps forward. And at the beginning of COVID, this was definitely what a lot of people are feeling they needed to do. It's like cautiously, 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 we still want to progress. And we don't want to just throw everything up in the air and throw everything out, even though there's all these pressures on us. So the guardian is fascinating. If you're thinking about examples of who someone is who might navigate that, one of the great examples I think of is Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth the Second.
0: Now, I was current... going to ask which one.
1: <laughs> ah, yes, definitely not Queen Elizabeth the First. She was more, much more of a pioneer. Uh, Queen Elizabeth the is taking the role of guardian. She represents an age-old institution, and which has to adapt to the current realities, and has been. Sometimes she was forced into adapting it, but she kind of has to navigate that line all the time. Contemporary life and in an institution that does and does not serve. And I think it's a it's an interesting one for someone to hold. And I think she holds that space extremely well. So we could all have the dignity and savviness of the guardian in negotiating that. And I think if we've ever been in an organization for a long time, like we're one of the old guard, we know this role. We don't want to throw at the history. And often we might come into conflict with somebody who's Newbie in the organization who's fresh with ideas, more of a pioneer engineer, like, ah, we can do anything and everything. And the guardian says, yes, and yes, we can do that. And we need to honor the best part of the organization. We don't want to just throw all the traditions out. And I have to say, I learned that lesson a long time ago when I worked at Outward Bound, and I was a fresh newbie and I was full of the pioneering energy. And I just want to say, let's just start everything over from scratch, throw all of our programs out and build this thing anew. And luckily, the board said, no, <laughs> that would be- Settle
0: down, Zoe.
1: <laughs> exactly. So the Guardian has definitely a tempering energy to it. So a little bit more of a balanced approach than the Pioneer, which is very much a surging forward approach.
0: Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. Queen Elizabeth, never explain, never complain. <laughs> I, have you, you've heard that one about the Royals? That's one of the rules that uh, particularly Lizzie lives by, apparently. So great example of a guardian that really brought it to life for me. Now I was going to ask probably a stupid question. I was going to ask you to give me an example of the pioneer, but they are thick and fast and all around us examples of pioneers. Who's your favorite pioneer? Oh. Look, I think uh, it's super cliche, but I think Steve Jobs is my oh, yeah. example of pioneer. I actually got through that massive Steve Jobs book and I, you know, amazing. He, he did amazing things. He wanted to leave a dent in the universe and I think he's done that. If we think about all of everything that he's given us in terms of technological capability, I, I think he absolutely has done that. I'm intrigued by- Tesla guy Elon Musk mm-hmm. because I love so much I can't wait for the day a politician can stand in front of a media scrum and say to them hey remember when there used to be road deaths you remember when people used to actually die in cars by the tens of thousands a year in Australia I think someone like Elon Musk is going to bring us to the point where we can have that conversation and he also did the he did the same sort of thing when South Australia was was wrestling with some energy issues, and he offered to build this incredible battery storage for solar power. And I just thought that he typifies the kind of catalyst that some of those long standing challenges that we have are going to need. So they're my they're my two favorite. I think.
1: Yeah, Elon. Okay, I have a little bit of a girl crush on Elon. Professional girl crush. Like, yeah, for me, he epitomizes big picture thinking. Grandiose visions for humanity, and yeah, and at the he same went to time, space too.
0: I didn't even mention
1: that. <laughs> yeah, he wants to colonize Mars, and that little minor yeah. project. Yeah, he also shows signs of shadow challenges. So when we talk about shadow, we might come back and talk about Elon.
0: <laughs> a great idea. I'm going to yep. make a note of that because I, I want to have the shadow conversation. Fantastic. Now, shall we move on to yep. Warrior? We've talked about Pioneer. Elon Musk. We've talked about the Guardian. That's the Queen. She's got to protect and build at the same time. Keep the best of what she's got, and then build on top of it because times are a changing. She needs to be measured. Tell us about the warrior.
1: So warrior, and I'm trying to say it with an Australian accent, so it doesn't sound like warrior. Like I'm worrying. It's warrior. Somebody who goes to war. <laughs> <Good> <laughs> quite <try>. different. Could <laughs> <Good> try. <laughs> right. Well, the warrior that. You know, soldier type person, but more of a leader at the front than a follower. A warrior is somebody who is seeking to win. So there's definitely an energy of overcoming, of combat, of challenge, I should say. And their ethos is to protect. So it's we need to win something back or win forward and protect at the same time. So there's a defensiveness and an assertiveness all wrapped into one. Now, I think we need to qualify warrior in that it's not for dominating or subduing others. It's about progressing and protecting ideals. And for me, the classic contemporary warrior is Greta Thunberg. So our young idealistic teenager who stood on the global stage at the age of 16 and said, how dare you? How dare you waste my childhood and scupper the chances of the global future with not paying attention to climate change and what we're doing to the environment? So her her championing of the environmental cause from is a wonderful warrior ethos. She's not trying to dominate anybody. She's not trying to kill anybody. She is trying to win rights for the planet and for humanity as a whole. She might be a little histrionic, I have to say, like she's a little bit kind of squeaky. <laughs> so you need to work on tone. And yet the energy of I'm fighting the good fight is, is perfectly embodied here. And I certainly expected a lot more warriors when we talked about the pandemic and how people were embracing that. But strangely enough, people didn't really feel the warrior energy was something that was necessary unless their business was facing ultimate collapse. And I think there was a lot of warrior energy being leaned on there. It's like, how can we get through this? How can we rally the troops? And it's a sh- kind of a short-term focused energy and it's a really powerful archetype because it summons courage, it summons conviction, it summons determination and those are really fantastic qualities that we might need for it on a short-term basis.
0: And hasn't Greta been embraced by the conservative media? They love her.
1: <laughs> oh, I think they love making her out to be a demon, the conservative <laughs> media. Yeah. Well, that's true of all the media, right? So yeah. if you show up as an archetype that goes against their Dominant narrative, then you're going to be portrayed as the shadow. Mm. And the shadow of the warrior is the bully. Mm. So, and this is an interesting one, too, right? Like we might think, yeah, I'm fighting the good fight. And yet, if we succumb to the shadow, then we end up becoming the bully. And sometimes we dupe ourselves. We don't even know that we've become that because we've started to believe our own bullshit. Which I'm not sure if I could say that on your podcast. So well, sorry, I'm, I didn't gonna ask. Ha-
0: I'm going to have to tick that box now, Zoe. That's okay. I have to tick the box every now and then. There is a box when you load them onto SoundCloud. All right. No, fantastic. You swear as much as you like now. We've got to tick the box anyway. So you might as well go for broke. Now, we've talked about the pioneer, the garden, the warrior. Tell me about the diplomat.
1: The diplomat. So the diplomat sits on the same side of the quadrant as the warrior in terms of the, uh, the focus on winning. So the diplomat takes a different approach to winning in terms of it's less combative and more negotiating. That's the embodiment of the diplomat. They're there for win-win and they're looking for win-win solutions across the board. They're not looking to win in spite of you. They're looking to win with you. So they are strong on their position and soft on their engagement with others. So they are courteous. They are flexible they are engaging, they're influential, and they're always towing the right line. So they're still towing their line according to their values. And since we started talking about shadow when it came to the warrior, the shadow for the diplomat is trickster.
0: That could be seen as tricky. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Manipulation is the shadow here. So we go from influence into manipulation because we get hooked on wanting to win. And that is the tipping point for the diplomat into the trickster is that just that that wanting to win getting that dopamine hit that wanting to dominate or subdue is as a power seduction i guess and if we fall prey to that we can move from being a beautiful diplomat into a trickster which is no good
0: when you think of a, a manipulating trickster who comes to mind for you zoe
1: <laughs> oh so many politicians Yeah, I think probably it's got to be one of the Trump cohort. You know, the people who can sit and lie to themselves, to everybody else around them, is just—it's just abhorrent to me. And they think they're being the diplomat. So John Bolton, right? Here's a classic example. He knew everything that went on with Trump, refused to testify in the impeachment trial, which would have put him away, and saved it all for his book.
0: (laughs) Great business move, that.
1: Oh, is actually there's it's stomach no, churning, isn't it? Yeah, there's no sense of diplomacy there. It's all about being a trickster. It's like I'm going to hold my hand and then play it later, all for serving number one. Who's yours?
0: Have you got a trickster in mind? Oh, geez, you've turned that back on me, haven't you? <laughs> a trickster. Look, I none of them a pit of There's a lot of politicians that that I despise that make my stomach churn. None of them jump out as particularly tricky. Uh, I wish I could think of one. I'm not chickening out. I just can't think of one. I can I could name a hundred politicians who make my stomach churn, but not necessarily in that way.'ll I'll get back to you if I think about it. I'll get back to you. I'm not trying to chicken out on that.
1: Oh, that's okay. If you've ever watched suits on Netflix? That's yeah. classic tricksters. They're all you know trying to be the smooth negotiators, but they're just manipulative jerks, really. and that's that's all tricksters, fair and square. It's not great examples of effective negotiation. I think it's all manipulation. So that's a bunch of lawyers manipulating each other. <laughs> mm,
0: yes, absolutely. I I like that. I like the uh, show Billions. Uh, I don't know if you've watched Billions. Oh, yeah. I think we're actually my wife and I are a season short. We've got a season to watch. There's a lot of tricksters on that show. It's all about manipulation and and getting their way. They they could be wonderful diplomats because they're smart enough and and have a, a winning enough attitude and and know how to interact with other human beings well enough. But the shadow. They're caught in their shadow and controlled by their shadow. And rather than going down the, the light side of diplomacy, they they follow the dark side of trickery. Great show, though.
1: My favorite diplomat as a counterpoint is Angela Merkel. I think she is the consummate diplomat. And I admire her for her tenacity and position and stoicness and the ability to own a room. Like the woman has presence. She can walk into on a global stage, hold her own against the most vitriol. The biggest vitriolist vitriolistic? I don't even know that's a word, but you know, the grandstanders, she can hold her own against them and just toe the line, toe the stability line and the the greater good line. And I think she is the epitome of the ideal diplomat, as far as I'm concerned.
0: I cannot disagree. Now tell me, let's go with the elder. The elder is the last of the five archetypes. What role does the elder play in all of this?
1: The elder is the filter through which we should see all the others. And so whichever archetype that of the four that we just described, we should always have at our center the elder. And the elder as an archetype shows up in every culture, and they have slightly different roles depending on which culture. Aboriginal culture, the elder is custodian of cultural lore, and they are responsible for educating the young people about cultural and cultural knowledge, essentially. In other cultures, they're seen as adjudicator or, yeah, so they get consulted for legal reasons or legal arbitrations. That's one role that that elders have in different societies. The core theme for the elder is that they have a balance of wisdom and compassion. So they can access the best of their mind, wisdom, as well as the best of their heart, compassion. And it's being able to lead with the balance of the two, which forms the essence of the elder so that they can make both sensible... And sensitive decisions. One of my favorite authors and mentors, Cindy Wigglesworth, which is a fabulous name, wrote the book SQ21 The 21 Skills of Spiritual Intelligence. And from her, I first learned the definition of spiritual intelligence. And she said it's wisdom and compassion, the best of the heart, best of the mind. You can't have one without the other. It's like a bird with two wings. Without one, you cannot fly. So I like that idea of a balanced bird having wisdom and compassion, navigating all of its decisions. So the elder is the centering one. It reminds us to always make decisions from that point of view, best of the heart, best of the mind, what's best for all. And when in doubt, be kind is kind of the narrative of the elder. And so you can take the elder essence and apply it to the warrior. So the warrior without the temperance of the elder could be a brute. And the diplomat, without the essence of the elder, could easily default into the manipulator, the trickster. And the pioneer, without the balance of the elder, could be a reckless gambler. And that's certainly the shadow side of the pioneer is the gambler, somebody who takes reckless chances, and the guardian without, without the balance of the elder, can become a fanatic, you know, too stuck in the past and his traditions. So that's the important temperance role of the elder. and I think. Of any of the archetypes, the one that we should carry with us always is that one. It should be the one that we embody, no matter how old we are. The wisdom and compassionate peace is something that can moderate all leadership forms.
0: Hey, I'm going to ask you in a minute about your favorite elder worldwide, any field. But I've got a, an observation about the elder role. I often see, and I'm I'm a rugby league fan, and I I, I love sport and cricket. Rugby league and cricket are my two sports. And you know, you see people who've moved through the playing ranks and the coaching ranks, and they've they've grown old in the game, and they see themselves as the elder. But really, they're still just a flaming warrior or a diplomat who's on the shadow side of a a manipulative trickster. But they think, that in their mind, they've reached elder status. There's someone who I'm thinking about in particular in rugby league. I'm not going to say his name, but I love listening to his podcast because he's actually quite a switched-on guy. But you know, he, he will talk about something that, that he must see the hypocrisy of what he's saying and his own assurity of his opinion. He thinks he's reached elder status, but he hasn't. Does that happen sometimes in organizations? Someone thinks they've reached elder status. But really, all they've done is spent a long time in the shadow of one of the other archetypes.
1: <laughs> yeah. So what you've nailed is the shadow for the elder, which is hubris. So that sense of arrogance is what turned the elder into a tyrant, and actually can turn the switch on all the other archetypes as well. So as soon as we take our gaze off who we're serving, which is an other focus, focus, and it, we. Start to turn our gaze onto looking after self and believing our own story, that hubris story that I'm so good. I've been around the traps. I know what I'm doing. I've spent 30 years on the field. Yeah, yeah, I know what I'm talking about. And we start to become self concerned and self inflated. We've lost our hold. We've we've let the shadow take over. And you know what's interesting about this in the research that I've been doing is that it's it's a biochemical trigger. So this switch to hubris is really powerful. And it was in the work of Detchner Keltner, who wrote the book, The Paradox of Power. Fantastic book. And he describes it this way. He says, what we gain power as it's gifted by our followers because in service to others, we're working hard to be of service to others. We get given and gifted positional authority and all the trappings that come with that status, prestige, authority, that is an exhilarating thing to be given those things and we like it and our brain likes up with dopamine and it's quite energizing. And what we find is that that feels so good. We want to do it more and we become obsessed with hanging on to power, getting more power, exercising power, and it causes us to be impulsive. We become more impulsive eaters and we can lose our sense of discretion when it comes to sexual flirting we can end up in inappropriate sexual relationships as a result and we can become dominating, controlling, all because our brain has this little snap of dopamine that we haven't processed effectively. And hubris is a sign that we've our brain has exploded with this dopamine and we've lost our ability to focus and be compassionate in service to others. So that is um, your story about the football player. It's like, yeah, his brain's been hooked by the dopamine surges and he hasn't found the, the ability yet to turn his gaze outwards and remember the people who put him in the place of power in the first place and that he's in service to them, not himself or his own ego.
0: It's quite funny to listen to I like like I said, I, I kind of I like listening to him because he he's got a lot of insight, but I can also see in him this craving to be the elder. He wants to be the elder. But I don't think you will ever be there because the hubris is just so strong. I mean, he actually says things multiple times in a single podcast that essentially add up to everyone else is wrong and I'm right. Everyone else is wrong on this and I'm right. And it will be like week after week of the same podcast. He That's basically the conclusion he reaches time after time that everyone else is wrong and I'm right. And he just can't see it. It's a, it's a terrible missed opportunity because he's achieved a lot. But anyway, that's small fry stuff. That's just footy. Tell me about your favorite elder in the real world.
1: The one that I mentioned in the book is Mary Robinson, who's the former president or is she prime minister? I can't remember the title. That's terrible. Of Ireland. Ireland. Mm. Ireland. Yeah. And she's ended up ahead of the organization called The Elders, actually. And this was The original chair was Nelson Mandela, and it was the idea for it came from Sir Richard Branson. And it was this idea of why don't we have a guiding force of leaders from around the world who've been on the global stage and have as their primary concern, the betterment of humanity and humanitarian principles and work for eliminating some of the greatest tragic human tragic experiences on the planet, such as slavery, such as degradation and abuse of women and children, all that kind of thing. And she chairs that. And in reading her story, she has managed to be able to continually grow and expand her perspective about what is community, who is community. And so she truly serves on a global stage in the way that she believes she is serving all of humanity. And there is no element of hubris that I have found in the things that she's doing. She's not doing it for self-aggrandizement. So when you're talking about wanting to be an elder, that is, it's a blindness to your own ego. Nobody should want to be an elder for the status of being an elder. Wanting to embody the qualities of an elder is because you want to help more people and more. you want to help have such a positive difference in the world on a grander scale, not for your own reputation, but because it's the right thing to do. It's to do good. To do good is it's is a right in its own self. And so she kind of stands there for me. Nelson Mandela would be what many people would claim is embodiment of elderdom and certainly in his later years, how he led symbolically and through very complex situations and did more to heal the divisions in South Africa than many others. And across the world. And across the world. So that spirit is quite strong. I'd say Obama is close to that, though he's had to take a very partisan stance given what's happening in the United States. And I think he's done pretty, pretty well with that because be, Yeah, it's a hard thing to say.
0: You can imagine Obama, perhaps three or four presidents down the track as he goes into this, the last quarter of his life, might reach that elder status. He he seems to have that way about him, that charisma about him that can kind of detach from the partisanism of what politics is in the United States. he He seems to have the capability to rise above that, but i I don't think we've seen it yet, and I don't think we'll be able to see it for a little while. he's He's too recently retired, I think, for that. but I think you I think you've nailed his type. you know, Mary Robinson, by the way, was the president of Ireland from 1990 to 1997. Now, Zoe, time has quickly run away from us because you're such an interesting guest, but you did say when we were going to come back to Elon Musk's shadow. Now, you identified that the shadow of the pioneer is the reckless gambler. Tell us your thoughts on Elon Musk's shadow. How often do we see it?
1: I think we're seeing it more and more lately. And I think the trap that he's fallen into, like. He's kind of got a balance of pioneer and elder, and elder because his primary purpose is in service to humanity, so he says, right? He wants to colonize Mars for the to ensure the future of the human race, and he's very upfront about this. This is not like he wants to colonize Mars so he can plant Elon Musk flag there. He wants to plant humanity flag there. So this is an elder-type aspiration, and the pioneer is because he goes out and just builds these amazing things, all these amazing companies. The shadow I see with Elon is, I think, what I described earlier that rise of the hubris, believing your own story and getting a little bit reckless with how you show up. So he's had reckless tweeting. He's had, mm, um, hasn't he? You know, yeah. And even his comments about COVID and that kind of stuff, like just not very sensitive or sensible in some of his expressions with that. So he's kind of getting delusions of, of
0: grandeur. Delusions of
1: grandeur. Yeah. Mm. And the other, cl- like, not so bad is Adam Newman, who's the former CEO of WeWork, who got it bad. Oh, my goodness. So I talk about him in the book, too, as a classic switch from elder to tyrant. He had a very altruistic mission, you know, where he's going to transform the way that people worked and lived together. And it was all community based and co location. And, like, what a great ethos and ethic to bring to work. Like, wow. And just had this massive meteoric rise in his business. And man, did he buy the story about himself? And he started to tout that he wanted to be president of Israel, the first president of the world, that he did want to plant we work on Mars. Like he he was quite different in that than Elon. He wanted to take his brand and plump it on, on Mars. And so we really see the hubris thing come crashing down all around Adam Newman. I think Elon is riding a fine line. I think he's a bit manic. And certainly some of the stories that people tell about him in terms of his lack of compassion and being a hard-known manager are not in line with elderdom or necessarily healthy pioneer. And it kind of he's got a little bit of that shadow poking through. I just hope he can tame it because we need, we need the kind of leaders that, like him who, are, who put ethos and ethics and the better protection of the planet and people at the heart of what they're doing without being drawn back down by their own ego.
0: I love your assessment of him, but I, as you talked about you know, compassion and the way he treats individuals, you can imagine in his mind, he's saying, hey, I'm working on a project that's going to make road deaths history. I'm working on a project that is going to make climate change history. I'm working on a project that's going to ensure the survival of human beings no matter what happens on this planet. They're huge, big things. And you imagine in perspective of what he's trying to achieve, the way he treats one individual in his mind is probably inconsequential. But of course, we know it is consequential because that person has a life, that person is a human being. And if it's a pattern, then it certainly is a shadow. It's all such interesting stuff. Now, Zoe, before we wrap it up, I challenged you before we hit record to leave us with your three best pieces of advice. So... Someone has listened to this podcast. They love the concept of archetype. They've tapped into what all of these different archetypes are about. They can see when they would be useful. What are three tangible pieces of advice that we could all think about tomorrow that's going to help us on this path?
1: Great. They're all the core attributes of the elder and they're all antidotes to hubris. And the first one is care. So caring about others is essential for keeping your gaze away from your own concerns and focused on others. So what can you do to show care and compassion for someone else or some other living creature tomorrow? That's sort of, that's number one. Number two is curiosity. So many different wise people across the centuries have said versions of this. If I know anything, it's that I know nothing. And I think that was Voltaire who said that. And Aristotle said something similar. So staying curious about what's happening around us and not jumping to the conclusion like I know best, like the example you gave, but thinking, what else don't I know? What else could I learn? Who else has an opinion? And leading with questions as opposed to answers is central to that. So that's number two is the curiosity piece. And the third one is humility, which is the antidote to hubris. And the way that we gain humility is putting up the mirror and saying to ourselves remember you are mortal and i love this story from ancient rome because it was said that roman generals when they came into rome at the head of a triumph they've just conquered the world and they're being celebrated in this massive festival in rome and it's a glorifying thing they always had a slave placed just behind them and they were the slave was instructed to whisper in their ear remember you are mortal and it was meant to help them detach from the seductions of power and hubris, the trap of hubris. And so I love that. Look in the mirror and, and say to yourself, remember, you are mortal. So those are my three things, humility, care, and curiosity.
0: They're absolutely wonderful. Zoe, Ralph, I have so thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
0: That was Zoe Ralph. I loved reading and talking about the leadership archetypes, the elder, pioneer, guardian, the warrior, and the diplomat, and the qualities that personify each of them. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Zoe on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's Teamswithans.guru forward slash, podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.